are we at the old house again? Gentlemen, Ghost wanted us to meet somebody. Something to do with a 100th episode party or something. I don't want to meet anyone that that creep knows. Oh, splendid. You've arrived. God! Dang it, Craddock. Don't sneak up on us like that. Sorry, old boy, but I wanted you to meet the fellow Cain and Abel recommended to us. Oh, great. Those two again. Don't they have their own houses of whatever to run? Funny you should mention that. This chap used to host an old mystery comic, too. Allow me to introduce... Silent spirit! It is foretold that the Franklin shall now meet... Destiny! Who's this clown? He dresses like DJ Dreadful or whoever. That's PJ Frightful, and this is Destiny, who used to host that old DC book, Weird Mystery Tales. Oh, that's an original title. Um, uh, Mr. Destiny, your endlessness, why are you here, and where's that big book you used to carry? Ah, yes, the ancient tome known as the Book of Souls, or the Book of Destiny. I was shackled to that book since the dawn of time, forced to witness the fates of billions of sentient beings. I carried that heavy load of eternal suffering for eons, but now no more. Behold, the iPad of Destiny! Well, it's not all that impressive, really. Prince is dead! It's very nice, but what do you want with us? You must choose your... Destiny, we know. Your fate must be forged. Whatever you decide in this moment will determine the course of your very lives. So which path do you take? Choose now, Franklins. What are our choices? Let me see. Let's click here. Oh, orange streamers with bats or black streamers with skeletons. Wait, you're a party planner now? Hey, it's a living. There's a creepy old house Out in the hills A domicile of weirdness Horror and thrills And ghosts A peculiar place Where the sun Doesn't shine It's the house Of Franklin's time Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Supermates, a husband and wife geekcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Cindy. It's October, so the spooky season is now in full swing. As promised last time, it's once again hammer time at the House of Franklin's time. We're going to cover another in the studio's famous Dracula series starring Christopher Lee as the Count. Surprisingly, we've only covered one other film with Lee in the role, and that's the original horror of Dracula, as it's known here in the States. That, of course, also starred Lee's lifelong friend Peter Cushing as Professor Van Helsing. A few years later, we covered the first sequel, Brides of Dracula, with Cushing back as Van Helsing, but no Lee as Dracula, and no Dracula at all. This year, we're going to leave the Victorian era behind and jump into modern times. Well, modern 49 years ago, anyway, with Dracula A.D. 1972. 
Okay, Dracula AD 1972 was released in the UK on September 27th, 1972. So a Halloween movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you know? Uh, it was directed by Alan Gibson from a screenplay by Don Houghton. Or I guess that Houghton, maybe that's how you pronounce that. Don Houghton. Music was by Michael Vickers. In the cast, we had Christopher Lee as Count Dracula, of course. Peter Cushing was Lorimer Van Helsing and Lawrence Van Helsing. Stephanie Beecham played Jessica Van Helsing. Christopher Neem was Johnny Alucard. Michael Coles was Inspector Murray. Marsha Hunt played Gaynor. Carolyn Monroe played Laura Bellows. Janet Key was Anna. William Ellis was Joe Mitchum. Philip Miller was Bob. Michael Kitchen was Greg. David Andrews played the Detective Sergeant. Lally Bowers played the Matron. Constance Luttrell played Mrs. Donnelly. Michael Daly was Charles. Artro Morios was the Police Surgeon. And Stone Ground was the Rock Group. Mm. Yesterday, Dracula was the most fearsome being the screen has ever seen. Today, tonight, you, you, you could be Dracula's next victim. new yet as old as time come on johnny a date with the devil are you ready he's ready he's waiting to freak you out right out of this world died september the 18th 1872 a hundred years ago to the day it must swear before the name of the devil to keep it secret who knows about vampires for god's sake my grandfather died fighting a vampire the most terrible the most dangerous vampire of all time the year is 1972 a leap year in horror a vintage year for vampires Masters of Horror to meet again in the 20th century. Come to me, come Dracula! London, 1872. Count Dracula and his adversary Van Helsing are locked in mortal and immortal combat atop a speeding, horse-drawn carriage through Hyde Park. The horses come free from the carriage and Van Helsing leaps away right before the carriage crashes into a large tree. 
Wounded and dazed, Van Helsing comes to, only to find Dracula stumbling about, impaled on one of the wagon's loose wheels. Even in death, Dracula tries to attack his foe, and Van Helsing grabs the wheel and pushes it into the Count's chest. He breaks off the rest of the wheel and leaves a stake in his heart. Van Helsing watches as his ancient foe disintegrates into dust. His mission accomplished, Van Helsing's will gives in to his injuries, and he collapses into death. Unbeknownst to both, a lone rider has followed the carriage and observes the scene. A disciple of Dracula, he collects the vampire's signet ring and places his powdered remains into a flask. Later, at Van Helsing's funeral outside St. Bartolf's church, the disciple digs a hole with the stake, past the church's sanctified grounds. He pours in part of the ashes and puts the stake in the open hole. Jump cut to 1972 and the bustling sights and sounds of modern London. A posh party is crashed by a group of young ne'er-do-wells who appall the stuffy host. As they dance and party to the screeching sounds of a band you never heard of, the older crowd has had enough and orders the young man throwing the party to call for the police. The lead malcontent, Johnny Alucard, informs his friends they have eight minutes before the fuzz arrives and challenges them to wait until the last minute to leave. The group escapes back to their hangout, the cavern. There, Johnny tries to sell the group on an even wilder happening, a satanic ritual in an unconsecrated church. The group, consisting of Laura, Bob, Gaynor, Anna, Joe, and Greg, agree, all but Jessica Van Helsing, who hesitates, although her boyfriend Bob convinces her. When Jessica's grandfather, Professor Lorimer Van Helsing, sees her reading one of his books on the occult, he urges Jessica not to take the subject lightly. Despite her grandfather's credentials as a leading anthropologist specializing in such matters, she chooses to ignore him. She meets the group at the crumbling, half-deconstructed remains of St. Barthos. She's shocked to find the tombstone of her great-grandfather, whose marker reads, Rest in Final Peace. Inside, after getting the kids high and playing some mood music, Johnny begins his ritual in earnest. Wearing the Dracula ring handed down through his family, Johnny calls upon many demons and devils and the Count himself. He asks Jessica to come up to the altar, but she refuses. Laura begs for him to pick her instead, and so she comes forward and lays down. As the winds begin to howl and blow, Johnny pours part of Dracula's ashes into the goblet Laura holds above her chest. He then slits his wrist, letting blood flow into the cup. The ashes and blood mix and pulsate as outside the site of Dracula's grave does the same. Johnny pours the blood all over Laura's chest, and as she screams for help, the others run in fear, freaked out more than they bargained for. Outside, mist begin to swirl outside of Dracula's makeshift grave. In removing the stake, Johnny witnesses them coalesce into the form of the Prince of Darkness himself. Dracula dismisses Johnny's claim that he resurrected the Count, telling him, It was my will, as the signet ring mysteriously moves from Johnny's hand to his. Dracula approaches a pleading Laura and, bearing his fangs, slates his 100-year-old thirst. The next day, the group of friends meet at the cavern and discuss their weird brush with the supernatural. Johnny appears and tells them it was all just a gag and that he had just taken Laura to the train station to go home to her family. Gaynor and Jessica believe Johnny got that hometown wrong, but he quickly changes the subject, asking Jessica to accompany him to a jazz festival. Bob is having none of it and takes Jessica away, so Johnny reluctantly agrees to take Gaynor. Laura's lifeless body is found sloppily buried amongst the rubble at St. Bartos by a group of children. Police Inspector Murray is put on the case and wonders if the girl ran afoul of some cult activity, like similar murders in the States. 
when his sergeant gives him a list of the names of some of Laura's known friends, one she had been busted with on pot charges earlier, he decides to call on a consultant they had used in a previous case, Professor Lormer Van Helsing. At Van Helsing's home, Murray relates the wounds on Laura's neck and her lack of blood. Van Helsing's mind quickly moves from cult murders to the work of his grandfather. Murray is surprisingly more open-minded about the possibility of a vampire loose in London than you might think, trusting Van Helsing's instinct. When Jessica arrives home, Murray questions her and tells her of Laura's death. Upset, Jessica confides that the group's activities took a dark turn when Johnny Alucard recently joined them. Later that night, Professor Van Helsing works out that Johnny's name is an anagram for Dracula, while Jessica has vivid nightmares, somehow connected to what is happening to Gaynor across town. Johnny takes her back to his apartment, gets her high and drunk, and then takes her semi-conscious to Dracula, who is none too pleased he brought the wrong girl yet again. But still, he hungers and feeds on the girl. Johnny demands Dracula keep his promise to make him immortal, and Dracula reluctantly agrees, knowing having an agent will only aid in his revenge. Johnny dumps Gaynor's body and finds a victim for his new bloodlust. The next day, after picking up some holy water from a local cathedral, Van Helsing visits Murray in his office and learns of the two additional murders. Van Helsing tells the inspector this may all be the work of Dracula, whom his grandfather fought and destroyed in the Chelsea area 100 years earlier. He also theorizes that the vampire attacks are not random and that his family may be the ultimate target. Murray is starting to believe the professor may be right, but is wondering what his superiors will think of the theory. Nevertheless, he agrees to unofficially follow the professor's lead. He orders the police guard off of St. Bartolph's, but he can't do anything about the cavern, which has been shut down due to a drug bust. They worry this will cut off their lead to the vanished Johnny Alucard. Bob is also checking out the shutdown cavern and spotting Johnny's car outside, sneaks in to see what's going on. Needless to say, once he finds Johnny, he learns way more than he bargained for. Bob then shows up at the Van Helsing's home and urgently asks for Jessica to come with him down to the cavern to give the police her statement like the other kids. She leaves with Bob under the protest of their housekeeper, Mrs. Donnelly. When Jessica arrives, she finds not only a vampirized Johnny waiting for her, fangs and all, but also learns her boyfriend Bob has joined the undead. Johnny attempts to remove the crucifix necklace her grandfather had given her and has his hand burned. Bob goes in for the attack, but Johnny warns him she belongs to their master. Professor Van Helsing calls home, only to learn Jessica has left for the cavern. There he finds the place empty, save for her crucifix, left in the floor. Panicked, he runs across town searching for her, until he is stopped by Anna, who was also looking for Jessica. She admits that despite what she told the police, she does indeed know where Johnny Alucard lives. Van Helsing arrives at Johnny's apartment the next morning and finds him preparing himself a makeshift coffin from the inside of a bench seat. He notices a cross mark burned into Johnny's hand and demands to know the whereabouts of his granddaughter. Johnny informs him that she's to be Dracula's bride and attacks Van Helsing, but he soon recoils from the rising sun outside, peeping through the curtains. The professor throws a Bible and Jessica's cross into the makeshift coffin, blocking the vampire's retreat. Johnny manages to cut Van Helsing's arm with a switchblade before the vampire hunter forces him up the stairs with sunlight reflected in a nearby mirror. There, he stumbles into the bathroom, pulling the curtains with the sunlight bathing himself in the deadly rays. He then falls backwards into the shower and accidentally turns it on, destroying himself with its running water, but not before refusing to tell Van Helsing where Dracula has his granddaughter. Van Helsing calls in to Murray, and after the sergeant treats his wounded arm, the professor asks them to stay away from St. Bartolf's until tonight. Van Helsing 
asks for one hour after sunset to enact his plan to save his granddaughter. Murray agrees while the sergeant finds a drowned and fanged Johnny in the tub. Later that day, Van Helsing arrives at St. Bartoff's. He finds Bob's lifeless body outside of a tomb, apparently the victim of not having the proper vampire tutorial about the effects of sunrise. Inside, Jessica lies in a comatose state. Unable to wake her, he places the crucifix back around her neck, then heads outside to begin his work. He digs in the ground and sharpens a series of stakes, hiding them in a makeshift grave as the sun sets. Dracula rises and awakens his bride-to-be. Through much pain, he removes the cross and prepares to indoctrinate her in the ways of the vampire. Van Helsing calls out to him and makes him recall the face of the man who destroyed him. The Count's attention is now on the elder Van Helsing, who flees up the winding steps of the cathedral. The powerful vampire knocks him about, but the wily professor manages to stab him with a silver dagger, sending the Count plummeting to the pulpit below. Dracula commands Jessica to aid him. When Van Helsing arrives at the bottom of the stairs, Dracula is free. Van Helsing runs outside and leads Dracula to his trap. The Prince of Darkness notices the deception, but Van Helsing splashes him with holy water, causing him to stumble into the grave onto the wooden stakes. Van Helsing uses a shovel to push the writhing Dracula onto them, and his body begins to disintegrate. Free from his thrall, Jessica runs to her grandfather and is startled by the sight of Bob's undead, lifeless body. As he comforts her, Van Helsing points to the nearby grave of their ancestor, and recites the Latin script, Rest in Final Peace. Okay, a little background on where the Dracula series was before we got to 1972. Surprisingly, Hammer didn't make any further Dracula sequels after Brides of Dracula until 1966, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, where Lee finally returned as the Count. Two years later, Lee returned for Dracula as Risen from the Grave. Then in 1970, Taste the Blood of Dracula and Scars of Dracula. By Scars of Dracula, the Dracula formula seemed to be going stale, and Lee was beyond over the role, constantly being begged back by Hammer Management, who basically blackmailed him into appearing so everyone employed by the studio wouldn't be out of work. In fact, Hammer was set to replace him and taste the blood of Dracula, but distributor Warner Brothers demanded Lee in the role. They basically said, uh, we told you we would you know, basically distribute a Dracula film, but a Dracula film with Christopher Lee. Lee. Yeah. And so that's why uh, Ralph Bates, is Lord Courtley, was supposed to actually become Dracula in that film. He is replaced by Dracula in that ceremony. So Gotcha. In that same year of 1970, American International Pictures released Count Yorga Vampire, featuring actor Robert Quarry as a very Dracula-like vampire preying upon hippies in present-day Los Angeles. Hammer's primary distribution partner at the time, Warner Brothers, noted the success of Yorga and asked for a Dracula film in that <laughs> um, vein. Oh. <laughs> they wanted not only Lee, but Peter Cushing back as Van Helsing, pairing the characters for the first time since 1958. Dang. Way to leave money on the table, Hammer. Uh, the movie was filmed under the working title of Dracula Chelsea, then Dracula Today, then finally Dracula AD 1972, although in some regions where it came out later... Then 1972, it was called Dracula 1973. And then when it was aired on TV in the early 80s, it was called Dracula Today because it wasn't 1972 anymore. Mm. So, <laughs> I would begin with narration telling us it's 1872 in Hyde Park in a great sequence with Lee and Cushing and their stunt doubles, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Battling atop a moving carriage. The only bummer is it's a... It's Hammer's patented but never convincing day for night yeah, shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh. It's late afternoon in Hyde Park. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, the reveal of Dracula impaled on the wheel is really nicely done. Yes. Because we see Van Helsing awaken, then we get some blurry shots from his perspective uh, of the carriage. And as they focus, Dracula walks out behind the carriage, and bam, he's got a wheel sticking in him. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess it didn't kill him right off because it wasn't in the heart yet. It wasn't far yeah. enough in yet, yeah. Uh, Van Helsing has to pull himself up on what's left of the carriage to stand, and Cushing, of course, sells that he's pushing himself to live long enough to see the end of this. Yep. Yeah. When Van Helsing pushes the wheel into him, it's very visceral. It's not gory at all, but it's still very well acted between Cushing and Lee. Yes. Lots of guttural, you know, and, and they're, they're into it, so... And it's always fun to see a hammer Dracula disintegration, and we get two in this movie. Yes. So that's the you know, double on this one. Uh, Dracula's Disciple is also played by Christopher Neem, who we will see as Johnny Alucard in a bit. I don't think that's their original family name, do you? No, no I don't think so. <laughs> kind of hiding in plain sight there. Yeah. Van Helsing slides lower and lower down the wagon, watching through the wheel spokes, but holds on to the last second when there's nothing left to Dracula but dust, then he gives into his injuries and collapses and dies. Yeah. Now that's some that's some willpower right there. Yep. <laughs> now for years, I believe this was supposed to be the same Van Helsing we saw in Horror of Dracula and Brides of Dracula, despite him being named Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Because we get the initials JVH on Cushing's tool bag in Brides of Dracula. Mm-hmm. I was proven wrong by our friend and listener Alistair Hughes, whose excellent book, InfoGothic, tries to untangle the film's timelines. In a later scene on the same stone, above Lawrence's information, we see markings for Joseph Van Helsing, Mm -hmm. who lived from 1783 to 1847. So Joseph, or JVH, was Lawrence's father. Mm -hmm. So basically the character we saw in the previous two Dracula films was the father of the one we see at the beginning of this one. Uh, So that would be Lorimer's Mm great-great-grandfather. So... Uh, so Hammer was trying to connect the dots. Unfortunately, the first film, Horror of Dracula, was set in 1885 in Brides in 1890. And, you know, it doesn't, yeah, doesn't add up. No. Yeah. No. So. <laughs> also, you know, them some mighty strong genes is basically copy and paste. Yep, exactly. Yep. Confusing matters further, Lawrence, different spelling, L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E versus the W in the middle, appears in The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires a few years after this, but set in 1904, over 30 years after this this Van Helsing was supposed to have died. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was this Lawrence's son. I don't know. But I don't know. There's no real way to reconcile Hammer's timelines, really. No. So, uh, if you ask someone, how many times did Peter Cushing play Abraham Van Helsing, which is the character's name in the Stoker novel? Right. The answer is none. It's a trick question because he never played Abraham. No, it was always something else. Something else. Lawrence, Larmer, Joseph, apparently. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, Johnny's ancestor picks up some of the ashes. Wouldn't Dracula be missing a leg or I something? I was wondering that, too. I was like... <laughs> He's missing his head. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just, I thought that was weird. He didn't pick up all of them. He's like, like doesn't have a dust buster, you know. Yeah. That he can just, like, whip out and suck it up. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, he buries part of the ashes outside the cemetery. I wonder why it wasn't a more secluded place he chose, you know. See, I wonder if it I I wonder if there wasn't supposed to be some kind of ritual like burying next to the um bones of my enemy, blah blah blah, you know. Or like mocking the church by burying it right yeah, outside. Yeah, something. It. I wonder if there's something that wasn't, you know, cut yeah. out there. Then he puts the stake in the ground, so I mean, wouldn't somebody notice that? 
in the hundred years, and it must have been a pain in the neck to mow around. Well, and the thing <laughs> about it, also, wouldn't wood after a hundred years have disintegrated? Just rotted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, just the out in the weather. I mean, I know? we had a fence post out here that we had our mailbox on because we yeah. lived out in the country, so our mailbox on the other side of the road. And I mean, that thing rotted after about fifteen years. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I like the old-fashioned hammer music in the opening sequence, but I would have preferred we heard the classic James Bernard, dun, 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 you know, Dracula theme. Yeah. We get a bit of it above the Warner Brothers logo, but that's all yeah, we hear yeah. of it. Yeah. So it's unfortunate. Then jump cut right onto an airliner going skyward so we know we're not in Victorian England anymore. Yeah. Uh, the music by Michael Vickers sounds like it could come from any 70s cop drama, exploitation flick. Or even the 70s Amazing Spider-Man TV show with Nicholas Hammond. <laughs> it gets a bit overpowering with its, you know, wah-wah. You know, oh. that sound. Okay. Uh, you know, as if it wants to remind you, we're in the 70s, you know. Yeah, current times, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, screenwriter Don Houghton wrote several episodes of Doctor Who and the two Dracula follow-up films, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, which is a direct sequel to this, and the aforementioned Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. He also wrote the other Hammer Shaw Brothers collaboration, Shatter, starring Cushing, and future Paul Kent of Superboy TV series, Stuart Whitman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, director Alan Gibson had helmed a few episodes of Hammer's first anthology TV series, Journey into the Unknown, and would eventually direct a few episodes of the Hammer House of Horror TV series as well. After this, he directed the sequel, Satanic Rites. So pretty much everybody, almost everybody but one person, carried on from this film to the next, so. Uh, we then get to that party scene. <sighs> and yeah, <laughs> it's um, kind of interminable. Yeah. Uh, this is when it's obvious a bunch of old guys have created a movie about young characters they can't relate to and don't understand. Mm-hmm. It's like a cinematic version of Bob Haney's Teen Titans without the charm. Uh-huh. Those, yeah, those scenes are, yeah. I'm just like, oh my. <laughs> I mean, Danny just walked past and she's like, is that still going on? <laughs> yeah. It's only about seven minutes, but it seems like it's about 30. Uh-huh. It, it really does. Uh, I mean, I know these people at the party are stuffy and they are acting like they've never been so appalled in their lives. But I'm not really rooting for these kids either. No. I mean, what's what's cool and fun about ruining somebody else's good time? Exactly. You know, it's like it's not your party. Go get lost. Exactly. You know, I, I just I don't I don't get it. Maybe I'm too stuffy myself. I don't know. It doesn't help that this feels like a commercial for the band. Uh-huh. The birthday boy Charles tells his mother, "I only invited the Stone Ground," so he name drops the band, their real world name. Don Houghton had uh, written in an appearance by Rod Stewart's band, The Faces who were booked for this, but Warner Brothers flexed their muscles and insisted on an act that they wanted to push on their label. As a result, we missed out on a legitimate rock legend in this film and got these that. guys. Yeah, these guys. Mm. Which, I mean, they're not like horrible, but it's like... In comparison. Yeah, yeah. it's like, who are these people, right? Yeah, so They're probably like, people will be right now, oh, they were big, they were huge and like out in the Bay Area or something. Well, they might have been, but you know, they're not Rod Stewart, so... <laughs> We meet our group, as Jessica later calls them, led by Johnny Alucard, played by Christopher Neem. He's literally been in everything, although this was a very early role for him. He's probably best known for the, the Timothy Dalton, James Bond film, License to Kill, Ghostbusters 2, and he was in The Prestige, which had both Wolverine and Batman in it. You know, mm-hmm. Hugh Jackman and, and uh, Christian Bale. What yeah. was he at in The Prestige? I don't know who he was exactly in that. I haven't seen that in a while. That's a good movie. Mm-hmm. It yeah, is. a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He also appeared in the Superboy TV series, the 1990s Flash TV series, 
as well as Star Trek's Voyager and Enterprise. So lots of geek cred mm-hmm. for Christopher Mansfield. Johnny looks like he's a decade ahead of himself. He's dressed like Prince circa 1984. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe an extra from the Zorro TV series with his frilly shirt and bolero jacket and flat hat. I don't know. But he's very stylish and he does not really look 70s. So that's kind of cool that he's like, he sticks out yeah. from the rest of them. So. Dancing with Johnny at one point is Caroline Monroe, often cited as one of the leading ladies of Hammer Glamour, but she surprisingly only made two Hammer films, the other being Captain Kronos' Vampire Hunter, which we really got to cover one of these days. The only reason I keep putting it off the list is because it doesn't, aside from her, it doesn't have any like real name. Right. But it's, it's such a good movie. We need to cover that. Uh, other than Hammer, Monroe is best known for being a Bond girl and a spy who loved me and appearing in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. She went uncredited as the wife of Dr. Fives God. in both those films you love. Uh-huh. Uh, and our friend in 13th Dimension, Maven Dan Greenfield, is obsessed that she should have been Talia to Christopher Lee's Rachel Ghoul in a never-realized 70s Batman flick, and I have to agree. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, her and, uh, um, oh, God, what? Somewhere in time. Uh, Jane. Seymour? Jane Seymour. God, I couldn't think of Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour. Would have been great as Talia, too, especially if you think about her in Live and Let Die. Yeah, yeah. She would have been good, too. The outfit that Caroline Monroe has on here isn't seen on screen much for some crazy reason, but there are tons of stock photos of her in this low-cut midriff top with tons of fringe hanging off. I mean, like wings, basically. Yeah. Uh, Hot pants and thigh-high boots. For some reason, we get to see the singer from Stone Ground's dental work up close, but not Caroline Monroe in this outfit. So, fail. Mm. <laughs> uh, we also have Anna played by Janet Key or Anna. Is it Anna or Anna? Yep. Uh, can't oh, remember. Yeah. We also have Anna played by Janet Key, who was also in Hammer's The Vampire Lover. She was one of the maids, uh, which we covered way back on House of Frankenstein early on. Like many of the other folks on this list, she was involved in a series I never heard of until I started doing research on this episode called Orson Welles' Great Mysteries. Paging Rob Kelly, what is this? Yes. Let us know. He should know. You should know. I believe Marsha Hunt, who plays Gaynor, is the Count's first black victim. She had a relatively short career, also appearing in The Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, Mm -hmm. which is a horrible sequel to the original Howling. Uh, Poor Doomed Bob was played by Philip Miller, and he had an even shorter career. He only has five IMDb credits, including this. Maybe that's because he dresses like Fred from Scooby-Doo, uh, or that one guy from Josie and the Pussycats who, who dresses, dresses like Fred, Fred from, from Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Scooby-Doo, there's a cartoonish Joe Mitchum, played by William Ellis, who was in Hammer's Quatermass in the Pit and appeared on the Avengers, the John Steed M. Appeal Avengers. Mm. Uh, Joe dresses like a monk for some reason. I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. Michael Kitchen plays Greg, the least memorable of the group. In fact, I completely forgot this character was in this movie until watching it again for this. Yeah. But the actor who probably, but of all these actors, he probably had the best career of the group's B squad, of the lesser characters. He has appeared in everything, including two Bond films, GoldenEye and The World is Not Enough, as uh, the character of Tanner. So he's like a recurring character in that series. He was in Out of Africa and even the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, as well as Orson Welles' Great Mystery. So again, Rob, Orson Welles' Great Mystery. What you know? What, What's fill, going on there? Fill us in. And of course, our leading lady is Jessica Van Helsing, played by Stephanie Beecham. A year after this, she appeared with Cushing in a fun little film from Hammer's rival Amicus, 
called And Now the Screaming Starts, but is best known for her pivotal role of Sable Colby on Dynasty and then its spinoff, The Colbys. She also appeared in Star Trek The Next Generation as Countess Bartholomew, the love interest of Professor Moriarty in the holodeck. Uh, she later joined the cast of Sequest DSV. And of course, you know, Peter Cushing played Sherlock Holmes, so there's some, a lot of Holmesian connections there. There is a cute bit where the two, where two other hippie kids are making out under a table. Well, the guy's making out. The girl is, is bored eating an apple. Apparently not doing his best work. Yeah, apparently not. When the cops arrive, the guy rolls out and says, peace, man. And the Bobby just smiles at him. I thought that, that was kind of cute. That was kind of cute. So then we're off to the cavern, and I have to say, this place looks cool, even if kids, and I'll use the word kids likely because these people are in like at least their mid-20s, mm-hmm. hanging out in a coffee shop was kind of out by then. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the comics, Peter Parker's bunch had the coffee bean in the late 60s. So, you know, but there are some weird spider web patterns in this place, I know. oddly enough. So it's got this weird kind of pseudo-horror setting. It's like, that's not so much a cavern as it is a spider spider web you know why didn't why aren't there stalactites and stalagmites but i don't know uh the group says things like way way out and and hey but it sounds wild a lot they say things like that a lot it really is like bob haney wrote this in some ways yeah like danny said she said all the cringe yeah (laughs) and the other thing i have to say this about stephanie beach and when she saw her on on screen danny's like oh is that the lady from the brady bunch (laughs) She thought it was Carol Brady because of her haircut. She's in the opening sequences of this film. Stephanie Beecham has the Carol Brady mullet that Florence Henderson famously wore <laughs> in at least a couple seasons of the Brady Bunch. She does, yes. And I had that in the notes. I was going to get to it, but you know, you better to bring it up now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny tries to sell them on a date with the devil, and I have to give Neem a lot of credit because he digs down deep. It makes Johnny seem both menacing and interesting, despite some pretty horrid dialogue in places that yeah. he has to deliver. Yeah. It gets better, folks. Just hold yeah. on. It gets better. Uh, Bob brings up that you have to have a desanctified church. Couldn't they have just tried a Ouija board in someone's basement first? I know. I mean, you know, baby steps, guys. Come on. We follow Johnny back to his apartment, and we see he has an etching of Dracula and a box containing the flask of ashes and Dracula's ring. So clearly the family was really mm-hmm. into handing down their heirlooms. So it's really fascinating if you think about it. Johnny's great grandfather or, or probably great great grandfather indoctrinated him, indoctrinated his son in serving Dracula and they just kept passing that down. Right. Because it was something that wasn't going to come about for a hundred years. So, right. you know. Yeah. I wonder why, like, was it, did it have to be a hundred years to the day to do this? See, that's what I wonder. Yeah. So it was like the kind of like the hocus pocus thing. It was like three hundred years to the day or whatever. You know? Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, and of course, Alucard is an anagram for Dracula that was first used by Lon Chaney Jr. in Son of Dracula, which we covered last year. But a vampire using an anagram of their name has its roots in Sheridan Lefanu's Carmilla, which predated Dracula, and of course was the basis for Hammer's The Vampire Lovers. Mm-hmm. So. Poor Bob gets used for exhibition a lot he gets to bring up jessica's grandfather and his profession before we meet him at his home they're outside the car and it's like you know bob is the exposition guy in this film uh lorimer van helsing finds jessica looking at the black mass book and chastises her for being so dismissive he talks about how their family has a history of research into the occult 
so he and Johnny have a lot in common, just on opposite ends of the same spectrum. They're mm-hmm. both like really strictly following the family, the family line. Yeah. You know, so it's it's it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Van Helsing is concerned about Jessica hanging out with her gang, as he calls them, but she corrects them that they are just a group of friends. She does tell him she's never dropped acid, shot up, and isn't sleeping around. I'm glad they didn't make Van Helsing a total stiff to her. He's trying to steer her in the right direction, but also trying to be cool about it so he doesn't push her away. Right. So he's not like his character in Twins of Evil. Yeah. Right. Burning purifies, you know that. So that yeah. was for Doctor Ange. But so. I also wonder, like you said, how old are they supposed to be? Is this like after they've graduated college and they're doing like a year or two of just goofing off, or you know? I get that they're supposed to be younger, like they're like they're out of high school. I don't know if they're in college or they're just like they they're not going to college. I don't know what the deal is, but I I, I don't think they're supposed to be like. I supposed to be like they're like late teens, early twenties. That's the way I get. But mm. you know, in 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 England, it's different too. Yeah. Like you go to you go to like you, I know it's different just from listening to Andy Leyland talk about what Michael right. did. Um, going to there's a difference between college and university in England and stuff like right. that. So yeah, so there's an odd bit when Van Helsing puts the Black Mass book back up. He briefly pulls out the Legend of Count Dracula by Lawrence Van Helsing. Then he looks over to the same etching of Dracula that Johnny has in his home, and he seems to get some kind of headache. He like rubs his head, his forehead. Yeah. So he then he then looks to the rather crude painting of his ancestor. It's probably his grandfather. So it's like he's getting this feeling or premonition or psychic bolt that something bad's about to happen. Yeah. Uh, related to Dracula. So you know, at this point, they don't know anything about there being vampires or anything, but it's like. I don't know, that was kind of like, I guess Dracula's just that powerful that, you know, he's reached beyond the veil to, you know, send this warning, you know, or something, this put this fear in him. Uh, Jessica and Bob noticed Lawrence's tombstone at the cemetery and the fact that he died 100 years before to the day. Bob suspects Johnny arranged all this on purpose. You're right, Bob, if you had just pulled her away from all this ah. then, just leave, just leave. Uh, then Joe pops up and scares them wearing a skull mask, and I'd have taken him up on that offer to kick him in the head for it. I'd have kicked him somewhere else. <laughs> you pointed out that all the other girls have on black shrouds yes. with plunging necklines when they walk in, but Jessica never gets one. But it's kind of hard to hear, but Laura does ask her to try one on, so maybe she just refused? I don't know. Uh, later on, she's wearing a white shroud-like dress with plunging necklines, so, you know. I don't know. Um, maybe they just thought, you know, they wanted to be you to be able to say, oh, Jessica's, you know, standing out from the crowd. She's not fully involved in this, right? Right. So, so I guess they have some pot smoke or some type of drug circulating because they seem high, although they get ver- they get high very quickly, it seems like, sitting there, you know. And then Johnny has Joe turn on the reel-to-reel tape machine, and then he actually says, dig the music, kids. Uh, <laughs> and he says it in the best possible way an actor could deliver that with a bit of irony so it's not totally unbearable. Right. Because I'm sure Christopher Neen was like, you really want me to say dig the music, kids? Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll do it. You know, it's in the script. Uh, while, while everyone else is busy smiling and rolling their heads around, Joe seems more interested in Laura's chest. <laughs> Honestly, you can't seem to blame him. No, it's Carolyn Monroe. 
Uh, Johnny goes from hippie guru saying things like, that's it, that's it, and let it go. He was like Elsa. Uh, to black mass leader in an instant and begins calling up all sorts of demons. I didn't hear Etrigan in there, but there was tons of other ones. So. Oh, yeah. As the kids go from freaked out to genuinely, like, really freaked out, uh, the tape player runs out and screeches, which, of course, adds to it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, that's not the tape player. What's all this weird noise? And Yeah, what's going on what's here? What's going on here? Johnny calls out to Count Dracula, and his grave outside begins to pulsate. The effects are really well done. It's, you know, it looks like the Earth's, like, really moving and... You know, it's in shadow, and it's, it's it's really well done. He calls out for Jessica, who repeats no over and over, but Laura begs him to pick her. What is so wrong with Laura that she was so willing to volunteer for this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what kind of childhood do you think Laura had? To... <laughs> mm. That's when the winds pick up, and the leaves and dust in the old church start to blow about. And when Johnny is telling them about the ancient rite they must never speak of, the rest are scared. But Gaynor seems kind of into it, too, um, which is interesting if you think about who becomes Dracula's victims in this. Yeah. It's the ones that are really into it. Yeah. You know, except for Bob. But she, he wasn't necessarily Dracula's victim. He was he was Johnny's victim. So. so in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Clove, Dracula's assistant, slits a man's throat and lets it spill on, on all of Dracula's ashes in a convenient man-shaped Play-Doh mold. Mm-hmm. But here they can revive him with part of his ashes is in the ground outside and part of it inside and also part of it missing, mixed with blood poured over a hot chick's boobs. I think the other makes more sense. <laughs> what do you think? Just go with it. It's in the script. That's, you know. This entire ceremony is a lot like the one we see in the, in the previous Taste of Blood of Dracula, where Dracula fanboy Lord Courtly engages some hedonistic old men to try Satanism when they get bored of their brothels. So this the ceremony is quite a bit like it. But again, he like Dracula like possesses his body and takes it over. And of course Satanism was huge as a topic in movies in the late sixties throughout the seventies, starting with Rosemary's baby and continuing. That on was and the on. thing, yeah. And up in the next year the Exorcist, so yeah. An omen and you know The Omen, yeah, and every yeah. So how did Johnny not bleed out and die from slitting his wrist? Well, he only did one. Yeah, I know, but it's like, I mean, I looked again to see, did he cut his hand and not his wrist? But it looks like he cut his wrist. I know. So it's like, did he have some kind of, you know, mystic mojo to keep him from dying from that or something? I don't I don't know. It's weird. So they witnessed that, him slitting his wrist and pouring it into this goblet and just sat there. But when he tips it over on Laura and starts making her scream, that's what sent them all packing. Mm-hmm. And they just left her there. Oh, no. She's screaming for help, covered in blood, with a nut who just sliced himself. Yep. Some friends. At least Jessica tried to stop, but Bob wasn't having it. And he's like, come on, we got to go. You know, it's like, she's like, Jessica, she calls her by name. Jessica, don't leave me. I mean, me. several times. Yeah. yeah. And, and Johnny, of course, he's calling out to her, too. He wants you. She probably thinks he means the devil, but at one point... Houghton actually wrote dialogue for Lee to deliver that would directly connect Dracula to Satan. And he he wrote, I, I was always there, always, since the dawn of time, since the rebel angels descended into hell. Lee, who was a, apparently appalled by aspects of this script, vetoed lines like this that took the character far away from Stoker's vision, one he tried to preserve when no one else seemed to care to. So, And we'll get some more Stoker in this later in the movie. 
Johnny pulls the stake, and when the swirling mist from the ground dissipates, there's a really sweet upshot of Lee as Dracula, looking smug and evil as hell. And Johnny says, Master, I did it. I summoned you. And Dracula just sticks out his hand, and now he has on the ring. Yeah. And what I like about it is you can see Johnny look at his hand like, what What happened? Yeah. I'm supposed to be in control. What, what happened? Yeah. That's, a, that's my ring. Yeah. <laughs> My my dad gave it to me, and his dad gave it to him. Yeah, Lee doesn't have much dialogue, but he has you know he has more than grunts than he had in Prince of Darkness, mm-hmm. where he never spoke a single. Yeah, he says it was my will, you know. So he's got the hand all up in the camera, like you know, kiss the ring, sucker. You know, uh, I think Lee may have channeled some of his disdain for constantly returning to these pictures, which he felt were ever declining in quality, into the role. His performances never suffer, but if you look at the promo photos, man, he looks disgusted. Not evil, not angry, just disgusted. Oh. <laughs> There's one shot with him and the ladies of the film all around him, and they are smiling and laying their head in his lap and on his shoulders, and Lee seems to be thinking, I can't believe they made me do this. Uh, and the worst is a shot of Lee with some topless models at his feet. Oh, gosh. They're not any of the ladies in the movie. And he's got his hands on his hips, and he's he's look he's looking side eyed off camera like some angry guy who was forced into taking a family photo at a reunion. He just wants to leave. I mean, he just he's like, oh my god! I mean, just like with his hands <laughs> on his hip. I have to show you later. It's nuts. Yeah. So when Dracula bites Laura, it's blatantly sexual for both of them. He goes in like he's going to kiss her. Then he quickly moves to the neck and bites, and you get that uh, moment of penetration reaction oh, from wow. her. Uh, then we cut to Dracula's happy face, and then over his shoulder we see Laura is actually really digging this. Caroline Monroe sells this better than any other actress before. Right. That side-eyed look she gives him is like, wow, what's running through this girl's head? I know. Like, that's the last we see of her till we see her in the rubble later, but yeah. it's like, wow, yeah. She, <laughs> it's like, woo. Uh, and of course, Hammer are really the ones who added eroticism to Dracula on film. It was there in Stoker's novel to some extent, but they made it actually appealing, not entirely repulsive, mm-hmm. you know. Bob is chalking all of that up to Laura being smashed. How smashed could that girl get? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, come on. He says that Laura will be at the cavern tomorrow, a bit drained, but she'll be there. I know. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh. Nice. <laughs> Johnny shows up and lies and says he took Laura to the train station and sent her off to Ramsgate. But the girls seem to recall she's not from Ramsgate. He tells them Laura was in on the fake ceremony and produces a blood capsule and even shows them how it works in a pitcher of water. So he's saying all that was fake blood. It's like, yeah, okay. But here's the whole point. Why didn't they just ask to see his arm? Why there would have been a healed cut on his arm? He's got, if you notice, he's got on long sleeves. Mm. Why didn't they ask to see his arm? That's a good point, yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah, he would have had a nasty gash in his yeah, arm. That's yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's a really clever, brutal cut from the tavern scene to the next. Johnny is laughing at the group for buying into it, and he says, wait till Laura hears about it. Then there's a jump cut to Laura's dead body, mm-hmm. covered in blood, buried in rubble, as we hear Jack Hammers and equipment running near St. Bartolph's church. It's pretty gruesome. And she was found by a bunch of kids kicking a ball over the fence. It was like, ugh, and they're just staring at her like, ugh. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, what do we do? 
Donnie produces the tickets to the Jazz Fest for Jessica, and Gaynor says, Lucky bitch, I'd sell my soul to get those. Just wait, honey. Uh-huh. <laughs> you pretty much are. Uh, as the they shouldn't co- even get to go to the festival later. I think they went to the festival and then came back. I thought they were getting ready to go. I don't know. Good point. I don't know. I have to go back and watch that part again. Yeah. As the coroner examines Laura on site, we meet Inspector Murray. Actor Michael Coles had appeared with Cushing in Doctor Who and the Daleks. He appeared in a lot of British TV productions. Inspector Murray actually returns in Satanic Rites of Dracula, which makes him the only other actor besides Liam Cushing to play the same role in multiple Hammer Dracula films. So, uh, he seems all business, but has a dark, dry sense of humor, quipping about Laura already wearing a shroud as he leaves the site. Oh, I was like, ooh. <laughs> ooh, that's a little too much gallows humor there. But I like Inspector Murray, and I actually would have watched the TV series on him investigating paranormal cases, maybe calls in Van Helsing yeah. for guest spots a, a time or two per season. You know, maybe Peter Cushing shows up. That would have been a good TV show. So kind of like a British version of Kolchak, but it would have made more sense because he was a cop instead of a reporter. So <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, David Andrews, who played the unnamed detective sergeant, has quite a few acting credits, but not long after this, it looks like he went in directing a lot of British TV way up into the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. So Van Helsing apparently helped them on a case involving a cult witchcraft and blackmail i smell a prequel story but no cgi peter cushing no 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 thanks no thanks i'm sorry as somebody that's a big peter cushing fan i'm sitting there in the theater going oh uh he don't doesn't sound right uh, yeah uh, no okay (laughs) (laughs) i mean i technically well done i'll say that but still uh no not the man not the man yeah johnny tells gainer come in for a bite Okay, mm. now maybe the cheeky lines are getting a bit too broad and on the nose there. Mm-hmm. That might be too much. But, uh, when Murray visits Van Helsing at home, I don't know what cult killings in America they are referring to, but the placement of the story around Hyde Park was inspired by the then ongoing case of the Highgate Vampire. There's a lot of information out there about it, but essentially some folks believed that in the late 60s up through the early 80s, there was a real-life vampire at Highgate Cemetery near Hyde Park in Chelsea, the Chelsea area of London. Two rival occult experts argued over who and what they encountered, and one ended up being charged with desecrating graves even at one point. Yeah. So, and I think it was Taste the Blood of Dracula. They actually filmed parts of it in Highgate Cemetery. So, while, you know, all that was going on, and it was still going on. It went on, like, from, like, the late 60s up through the 80s, like I said. Van Helsing tells Murray... You think I'm a crackpot, but he answers no, and that alone wins me over with this movie because Murray trusts Van Helsing, is an expert in his field, and he's asking for his consultation. Right. So he is willing to at least consider the notion. I mean, that's very refreshing mm-hmm. in a film like this. If only comic book characters would be more open to <laughs> the supernatural after they've already encountered the supernatural. And we'll get into that later. Exactly. And we got into that last time, but okay. Uh, Murray's trying to play it cool, questioning Jessica, but Van Helsing blurts out, It was murder! Ghastly, horrible murder! I bet Murray's like, Geez, thanks, Pops. I was working up to it. You know? It's just... <laughs> Jessica tells Van Helsing Johnny just joined the group and kind of took over, but she can't really remember where she met him. Do you think he had some low-level hypnotic mojo working for him? 
like he knew, I mean, he didn't know how to raise Dracula. I know. And I think he purposefully targeted the group that Jessica was in. Yep. You know? Uh, he's been playing a long game for a few months on yes. this. Leading up to the anniversary, yeah. Van Helsing works out. Alucard is Dracula spelled backwards as soon as Jessica says his name again, but he has to write it out for the audience just in case anyone is really dense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean does the same thing in the Monster Squad. So, <laughs> You see a picture of presumably Van Helsing's wife on his desk. This is Cushing's actual wife, Helen. We have talked many times how her death a few years prior to this deeply affected him. In fact, he had physically aged so much after her death, they changed Jessica's role from his daughter to his granddaughter. Yeah. She was originally going to be his daughter. So, uh, Dracula is not happy that Johnny brought Gaynor instead of Jessica. He tells him, you have not learnt to obey. That's about as chatty as Lee gets in the role, and it works very effectively because you don't want this guy talking to you. Uh-uh. Uh, <laughs> because he's never going to say anything nice. He's not going to say, good job. You know, or something like that. When he bites Gaynor, Jessica, who seems to be seeing what's happening at the church in her mind, screams. And man, Stephanie Beecham's got one heck of a scream. Yes. Yeah, she she didn't do the scream queen thing too often, but man, she can do it. I tell you that. So are the Van Helsings just so linked to Dracula they can psychically sense him? Or is Dracula wanting them to get a sneak preview? I don't know. That's what I wonder, too. Because, you know, where she was at the ceremony, did that connect her, you know? Mm, that's true, too, yeah. Well, and like we said, Van Helsing got that little mental headache thing going yeah. on. So, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Gaynor's ashen gray skin after she's dead and drained is a nice touch. I mean, they, you know, she's a black actress. Right. And it's like, you know, we're used to seeing white people, like, you know, like, they, you know, they get a little paler. Mm-hmm. But it's like with her, it's like, oh, it makes it even more gruesome yeah. you know because it's like oh all the color and life's like literally drained out of her so it's like woo. dracula just walks away from her body apparently sated but that begs the question can he leave the church did johnny resurrect him in a manner that he can't leave the grounds and why did hammer bring dracula to the 20th century only to have him hang out in a gothic haunt as usual right right I mean, it seems like a lost opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we'll get him spreading outside of a gothic setting in the next film, but it's like you brought him into modern London, and yet he's still in a very in a, in a set that he could have been on in any of his films. Mm-hmm. So it's and in fact, he was in a set similar to that, Taste of Blood of Dracula. So it's it's kind of weird. You know, this is when Johnny de- demands a promotion, and Lee's response is as you would expect. He puts those pipes to great use and, you know, basically says, you demand, you know, so that's great. He tells him he has come back to destroy the Van Helsings and Johnny's line has been chosen. So Drac had this all set up and it's a good thing that the family followed through. Can you mm-hmm. imagine if he came back and they hadn't followed through? <laughs> of course, I don't know who would have resurrected him. See, that's the thing. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's putting a lot of faith in those people. Johnny trying to sell Dracula on him being more effective with the power does make me wonder if he really is trapped at the church. Mm-hmm. So Johnny can like leave and, you know, be a vampire out in the, in the wild, basically. I find it interesting that they don't show Lee biting Neem. Dracula just cuts him a stern look and puts his hand on his opposite shoulder. Like he's being tagged into a game or something. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't do with uh, any male homosexual connotations in a Dracula film in 1972. No, heaven forbid. Lesbians are great business though. Vampire lovers, you know. Yeah, so it's, yeah. <laughs> just, 
It was Finger the, pit. Finger yeah. pit. It was the 70s. Yeah. So I wonder how you make a vampire in this film. Mm-hmm. Because in Prince of Darkness, we see Dracula try to make a woman drink his blood, which is, of course, how you do it in the novel. Mm-hmm. I don't guess anyone's concerned about Laura or Gaynor coming back because they are bitten. But in other films, that's all you need. You know, they'd have to go stake them. Right. Or decapitate them or something. In Brides, we see you have to die and rise as a vampire a day or so afterwards. Johnny got the vampire lube express service, apparently. Because mm-hmm. he just, like, he got bit. And later that night, he's out running around, you know, dumping bodies and grabbing women at the laundromat. So, <laughs> and then, speaking of which, there's some nice cuts back and forth. Uh, Van Helsing's getting his crucifix and placing it on Jessica. Then it goes to Dracula just wandering the church, working his cape, which, again, is he stuck there? I don't know. But, you know, him moving his cape, that's, you know, inspired Neil Adams how he drew Batman. So it's always cool to see him moving his cape. And then Johnny dumps Gainer, and, like we said, he picks up a poor girl who just wants to get her laundry done. I know. I mean, come on. You know? I mean, I'm, I bet you she, like, the the change machine wasn't even working good that night. And she probably lost a couple bucks. And she's like, man, what a crappy night. And then she walked out, and then that happened. So mm. Dracula was smart enough to mutilate his victims a bit especially around the neck, but Johnny just goes straight for the jugular, literally. Mm-hmm. Leaves holes in the neck, which is like, ding, vampire. So, Peter Cushing gets to deliver his Vampire 101 course to Murray in his office. Van Helsing does this in every film, I think, to somebody. Mm-hmm. Either that or he's recording on a phonograph or something. something. Yeah. Murray mentions garlic cloves and silver bullets, and Van Helsing says silver bullets are impractical and garlic isn't that effective, but a silver-bladed knife works well, as does running water. And that's Chekhov's knife and shower right there. Gonna go off later. Mm. <laughs> there you go. I don't know why silver bullets wouldn't be effective. I mean, if a silver knife is, it seemed like to me, I'd rather have silver bullets because then I ain't got to get close to the guy. Exactly. I can stand on the other side of the room and shoot his ass. You know? <laughs> exactly. Go for the torso shot. Yeah, exactly. Here we go again. Yeah. Uh, Murray says they had to let the rest of the kids go due to angry parents. These guys are like 30. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, it's just the trope of any, well, it's not even Hollywood, just films, you know, casting older people as younger people. Van Helsing says, it's drunk blood. It's stronger now. It may be, it may begin to infect others. So was Drac too weak to infect Laura Gaynor before? Maybe his bite does just turn people into vampires if he's juiced up enough. Right. I don't know. So I'm with these answers. I want them. Yes. That's, that's like, Van Helsing thinks Dracula is resting at St. Bartoff's, so why not just go there during the day and tear the place apart, find him, and stake his ass while he sleeps? How big a place can that be? Exactly. (laughs) And heck, go during the day with Jessica and say, hey, where were you all at? Because probably he hadn't gone very far from the site of the ritual. Go there during the day, like, and don't don't wait until 5 o'clock in the evening to go do it. No! Go there, like, at the crack, like, well, no, not the crack of dawn, that's too dangerous. Eight o'clock in yeah. the morning. Eight o'clock. It'll you got be, the whole day. Got the whole day, search the church, look everywhere. There's got to be a vampire there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Stake him. Don't do like Jonathan Harker did in the first Hammer Dracula movie where he waits to the end of the day. Yeah. Goes, and he stakes the woman first and then not Dracula first. Mistake. You know, don't, you know. I get it in, like... The novel, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and in the film, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's mm-hmm. Dracula, they're literally racing against Sundown. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, and that's, I love that scene. It's great. It's just like the book, really. And it's, 
or that part of it, and then it gets off the book. But um, you know, that's 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 fine. But it's like don't don't go. You know, if you're gonna plan something, go in the morning. You know. Mm. But I don't understand why they just they don't do that because then it would ruin the climax of the movie. That's why. Uh, <laughs> don't you feel bad for Bob? I know. Poor Bob. I know. He was just trying to look out for Jessica and everything. Trying to find out what's going on. No so he saw, he saw Johnny's car outside. He doesn't yeah. trust Johnny, and I don't think he particularly likes Johnny. No. Well, he was macking on his woman. Yeah, he was trying to. Yeah, exactly. So. Miss Donnelly isn't much of a bodyguard, though, is she? I mean, no. Yeah, she she was supposed to keep Jessica there, and she you know she's fussy about her friends coming in and then her leaving, but she still lets her go. Of course, she's an old woman. What could she do to stop them? Exactly. Bob even tells Jessica that Gaynor is dead, and tells tells her that Johnny just walked into the cavern as if nothing happened, and you know, like the police nabbed him, and and they want everybody down there for questioning. That's some pretty devious lying for a guy who just died and came back as a vampire. I know. <laughs> I mean, of course, he's probably under, like, Johnny's hypnotic... Suggestion, yeah. Because he made him, so, yeah, he probably can command him. Uh, Johnny burns his hand, reaching for the crucifix. And you'd think, being a scholar of the black arts, a disciple of Dracula, whose family history is being a disciple of Dracula, mm-hmm. he'd know about crosses and crucifixes that you can't just reach out and touch one. Exactly. You know, it's like, geez. You know, I could see Bob doing this, but I don't know why Johnny did. Bob bends Jessica over the jukebox to bite her, but he makes sure to cop a very blatant feel before Johnny stops him. And I sure hope Stephanie Beecham was okay with that and agreed to it. Because <laughs> it's like, I watched it the first, I'm like, whoa, dude. <laughs> it's like, Okay. <laughs> And what gets me is after that, I think it was supposed to be that he rolled her off of that jukebox or whatever she was yeah. on. She rolled herself off. Yeah. He he didn't do it. And you could see her. she hangs there for a while. Yeah, because you can see her move her hip up. Yeah, like she like rolls herself off into the floor. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, when Van Helsing does his sprint around London, he gets winded. He has a stitch in his side. And it's almost like he's going to have a heart attack. Yeah. And that's a far cry from the younger Van Helsing who leapt up those steps in Castle Dracula and even leaped to a windmill to make a giant cross mm-hmm. and get old Baron Meinster, yeah. Uh, Anna admits she's been to Johnny's house, and I love how she says, he was so weird. <laughs> and, I mean, she's like, well, it was, you know, basically she was sleeping around. She's like, oh, well, yeah. I, I went like there it. for kicks. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, Ugh. But she's the way she says that makes you wonder what all other weird stuff was Johnny into, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm. And then Van Helsing arrives in Johnny's apartment. And how many times does he call him man? Oh, Get my out of my apartment, man. Listen, man, baby. You can't come in my apartment, man. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> oh, behave. <laughs> oh, Mike, Mike Myers is Johnny Alucard. Oh, sorry. I got cracked up. Uh, Van Helsing finds black candles in the apartment and Johnny says they are for a, a wedding man. Aren't you going to give the bride away? And that's some pretty sick revenge making a Van Helsing his vampire bride. You yeah. Know? So that's some pretty, whoo, man. So was Johnny just going to jump in his coffin and hope Van Helsing didn't notice and didn't destroy him while he slept? I know. 
Because he sees the sunlight. They start to fight and he sees the sunlight. He's like, ooh! And he like goes to the coffin and Van Helsing throws the Bible with the crucifix in there and he's like, oh, you can't go in there now. But what's Johnny just like, you don't see me! And he the lid. It's like, no, you can't come in here. It's like, it's like, it's like, safe! <laughs> and he's like, you can't stake me. I'm safe. I called it. You know, it's, <laughs> come on, you know. Johnny is still bringing a knife to a vampire fight. Isn't he super strong? And I mean, Van Helsing's an old man. He's an old man, yeah. And he's still getting his rear end handed to him. Yeah, I mean, when they show, I mean, I love Peter Cushing, but when they show his arms later, his arms are about as wide as a pencil. You I know. know. So it's like, but, well, he's got older man arms. Yeah. So what do you think of Johnny's death? <laughs> death by shower. I just, <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> And I mean, the thing about it is, you know, I was like, I guess you only disintegrate if you're an old vampire. Yeah. You know, and then that leads to the thing, you know, his teeth are still out or do they retract or, you know, how's that going to be explained? You know, and And how's Van Helsing not going to be charged with murder? Like you drowned, you drowned this guy. It's like, oh, no, when I came in, he was drowning in his bathtub. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Murray will cover it up, you know, but it's, yeah, it's. I, I think it's ironically funny. I wouldn't want to see Dracula destroyed by a shower, Mm-mm. but a poser like Johnny, I think it suits him. You know, he's he's in way over his head, despite yeah. the fact that he's indoctrinated by his family. He's in way over his head, you know, so him getting destroyed that way kind of works for him. Dracula was destroyed by running water in Prince of Darkness. He fell in the frozen moat yeah. outside Castle Dracula. And that's what running water, it's supposed to be like a stream. I, I don't know, does running water really apply to like plumbing? I don't know. See, I'm, I don't know. I don't know, but it, it was interesting. It was a different way, you know. The, I wish that he should have gone out like, um, oh, in Lost Voice. Yeah. You know, where it was the garlic and the holy water in the bathtub and, you know, he yeah. in there and then all the lesions and, you know, the smoke and, you know. Yeah, of course he was a hundred and some years old probably by that, that guy was, but yeah, it's, I think maybe if they'd had him like catch fire from the skylight because he yeah. pulls the curtains off the skylight and then he falls into the shower and it's like the combination of the two together mm-hmm. kind of kills him. But you know, they it Hammer had done so many and they've done not only Dracula films, they've done um, you know the Karnstein films, they've done Vampire Circus, they've done uh, uh, Kiss of the Vampire, so. They had a lot of different ways to get rid of vampires. This was one way they hadn't done before. So, you know, and they, and they used it on Johnny, so it's okay. Like you said, they gave Johnny some minor skin lesions, but I think they could have gone for something at least like Baron Meinster when he got burned by the holy water. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that would have been, that would have been good. Now, Johnny looks like he's got soap on his face. Yeah. Which is kind of, yeah. Van Helsing tells Murray, it's daylight now. You wouldn't find anything there. Uh, yeah, you would. Dracula, defenseless. Yeah. <laughs> Van Helsing finds Jessica in a vampire coma in the church, but couldn't he have just removed her? I mean, taken her out of there? I mean, you know, make Dracula come to him, set mm-hmm. it up, you know. But, again, maybe that ties into the theory that Dracula can't leave, and if he takes her out of there, he's not going to be able to confront Dracula and save her, so he's got to leave her there. Mm. So, I mean, if you buy that, but, I mean, I wish we'd just known, no, he can't leave, you know. Stephanie Beecham said they had to put tape under her breast to have the proper plumage when she was lying down because she couldn't wear a bra under that sheer white gown they had on her. Yeah, so, so, you know, that shows that her... I was wondering, you know, if her boobs were real or not because, you know, real boobs are going to go 
to the side. You no, know? her her boobs are. I think her boobs are real because I mean they get jiggle around a lot this movie. They really do. <laughs> but I'm saying, you know, because yeah. when she laid down, they were you know still perfect, and I'm like. They've either, you know, blocked them off with, you know, yeah, tape. They did. You know. They did. They taped them off. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently Bob's fate was filmed, but cut before the release. So, And I don't know if the footage still exists, but I'd like to see exactly what happened. Yeah. Because he's outside of this crypt. And it's got, it's pushed over. It's pushed the over, like yeah. the lid. Like he was getting ready to crawl into it. Mm-hmm. And he... I guess the just sun, didn't quite make the it. sun got him. And like you said, because he's not an old vampire, he didn't disintegrate. Yeah. But again, there's another body that has teeth. Yeah, exactly. It has fangs. And I'm like, dude. Yeah. And I mean, are they going to have to, I mean, is there a possibility for these guys coming back? I mean, Dracula's been turned to dust and come back. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, they're going to have to stake these guys and like behead them and everything. So, yeah, stuff garlic in their mouths and like mm-hmm. burn, burn them separately and all that stuff. I kind of wish they just showed Van Helsing shoveling and sharpening stakes. And not show the grave before. Mm-hmm. That way, we'd be wondering what exactly he was doing. Exactly. And that reveal would have been better at the end. The film never shows us where Dracula's been hiding. He just rocks up to the altar at sundown. So, again, we don't know where he's at. I don't think they know where he's at, honestly. <laughs> That's part of it. Uh, usually, they'll show Dracula laying in his you know, tomb, his, his coffin somewhere. Mm-hmm. And kind of looking around like when something's going on, but... Dracula is able to remove the cross with just a bit of smoke, not a burn, but, you know, he's Dracula. Right, so. and he's older. And he doesn't so. touch the cross either. He touches the chain. So, Van Helsing's line of, look on me and remember, that works both for this film and all of the films, really. Yeah. They intercut flashbacks to the beginning of the film as Dracula remembers how it was destroyed. But, you know, for fans, that's like, remember me, I'm Van Helsing, I'm Peter Cushing. <laughs> yeah. Let's go, you know. Lee goes into full-on predatory animal mode here. And in my opinion, no one ever did it better in that regard. His Dracula is less than human. And he's also a bit more in other aspects. But Van Helsing knows how to divert him away from Jessica. Which is what he was after. Yeah. He throws a candelabra at Van Helsing, just like their final confrontation in the first film. He threw Mm -hmm. one at him. And uh, Dracula says, You would play your brains against mine, against me who has commanded nations. And that was Lee sneaking in a slightly paraphrased line from Stoker's novel over some of the more questionable dialogue that he found in the script. So <laughs> the chase up the stairs is great, but I would have it would have been even better if they really had kicked into that James Bernard Dracula score. Mm-hmm. In the first film, Van Helsing chases Dracula up the stairs, and this time it's reversed. So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, Dracula slaps Van Helsing around for a bit, but then he shanks him with the silver knife. Uh, because Dracula underestimated the frail old man. Yeah. You know, so. But poor Van Helsing, he begs Jessica not to help him, but she has to obey. And we follow him down the stairs, and then we see Beecham holding the bloody knife, and then a wild-eyed Christopher Lee comes into frame. It's really nicely done. Yeah. And he looks pissed, and like, and kind of, he's kind of smiling with his fangs hanging out, too, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, thought you had me, didn't you? Cushing never forgets to favor that injured arm either. And he was always a master of figuring out every nuance of his character, what they kept in their pockets, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, he he always, like, he'd write down, well, they've got this in their pocket and they've got that. So he, of course, is going to be like, when he's running away from him, he's favoring that, that arm. arm yeah. That he got stabbed in, yeah. Dracula sees the trap and he starts to smile, but then Van Helsing says the final lines of the Lord's Prayer and splashes him with the holy water. 
If only he'd done it in cross formation, like in uh, yeah. Clouds of Dracula. Yep, yep, yep. When he got old Baron Meister in the face, yeah. But he didn't. He was down. He was down on the ground, so he really couldn't. Uh, like at the beginning, Dracula reaches for Van Helsing, but then he he just finishes the job this time with a shovel, and that's a really. I mean, he like really like Cushing like really sells like he like pushes his foot into the shovel, yeah, into Lee and down onto the stakes, and it's like all the Kensington gore, as <laughs> they call it, the blood shoots up. Jessica not only gets to see Dracula disintegrate, she also gets to find her vampirized boyfriend dead beside her. Mm-hmm. She gonna be in therapy. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I guess actually she's not because we know what happens to Jessica, you know, but because um, she's in satanic rights, played by a different actress. But so what did you think of this one this time? It's one of those cases if you could take out that beginning scene you know the party yeah the, if you could take out that party or even just take it down from seven minutes down to one yeah you know it just puts a bad taste in your mouth from the very beginning and it takes a while to get over it yeah i mean and then you've got the campy dialogue if they had had you know that sharpened up a script in a script polish. yeah yeah yeah, I agree. I mean because it's got a great opening with mm-hmm. the, the oh yeah that, that that's like one of the best Oh, like yeah, absolutely. Lee Cushing confrontations, really. Not as good as the first movie, but it's still up there. So, yeah. I, it's got Lee and Cushing in their signature roles together, and those parts are great. You know, like you said, basically that opening bit is great. Interestingly, two of the previous Draculas and some other Hammer films at this time had shifted away from the trope of wise old authority figure saves the day they had noticed the rising anti-establishment youth culture, and they started to make the young characters the ultimate heroes who vanquished the evil, even if a few of them fell by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Uh, this particularly happened in Dracula's Risen from the Grave and Taste the Blood of Dracula. The old guys, you know, in in uh, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, the old guy wasn't wrong, but the, the kids took care of it. And then in Taste the Blood of Dracula, all the old guys were bad. You know, they were hedonistic, awful people. Here, despite the modern setting, the ending tells us these hippie kids were wrong. Mm-hmm. Old Van Helsing was right, and they should cut out their debauched and disrespectful ways. So Hammer was able to better represent the youth culture through allegory by still remaining in Victorian Gothic settings. When they moved to the present, for some reason they lost that. Yeah. So it's 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 interesting. In many ways, this is like a proto-slasher film, if you think about it. An old evil has returned for revenge and is taking out a bunch of randy and often unlikable kids one by one. Mm. Seems like we may be running with that theme this month. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> so we'll take a quick break and we come back. We'll jump into the comic crypt and maybe Christopher Lee's hiding in there. I don't know. Welcome to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I'm Rich Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.WordPress.com and KCCinephile.com. And I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.Club. Let's begin with a report from our sergeant-at-arms. Vince, are there any housekeeping details today? Once the door is locked, there's no way out. The windows have bars that the jail would be proud of, and the only door to the outside locks like a vault. There's no electricity, no phone, no one within miles, so no way to call for help. Uh, Thank you for that very thorough report. As you all know... Oh, yes, we have a comment. It's time we started. We had better get on with it. Well, we're trying. As you all know, we're recording a new bumper for the podcast. So what testimonials can you give potential listeners? 
Yes, Al? I hope that as you listen to this, you are among your loved ones. Hmm, interesting feedback, I guess. Vince, what do you think he means by that? So many unexplainable things have happened here. You're not really selling it, guys. Chris, how do you think fans of classic horror, from Silent Screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, will feel after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? In the first moments, every muscle, every fiber will be afire with torment and agony. In the days to come, you will pray. Come on, doesn't anyone have something good to say about the Classic Horrors Club podcast? Yes, Bela. Well, this isn't a very pleasant way to entertain a guest. <laughs> At least someone's having fun. Let's adjourn on a high note. Al, would you like to sign us out? This concludes our danse macabre. Eloquent as usual, thank you. Please join us for the next monthly episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, available where all fine podcasts are found. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Okay, we're back from the comic crypt, and no, Christopher Lee wasn't in there. No. Uh, so we checked everywhere, and he wasn't in there. See, we checked during the day, like a smart person. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> we're going to cover a story from Detective Comics, number 49, April 1980, on sale January 24th, 1980. So again, nowhere near Halloween. Mm-mm. Uh, the cover by Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano pertains to the Robin and Batgirl team-up story inside, so we're not concerned with it. We're interested in the first of two Batman novelettes that were promised on the cover. And this is during Detective Comics' dollar comic era, which I loved. So, Creatures of the Night uh, was written by J.M.D. Mateus. Uh, Irv Novick and Vince Coletta were the artists. Adrian Roy was the colorist. Ben Oda, the letterer. And Paul Levitz was the editor. Swinging near street level in a seedier part of Gotham City, Batman notes that legendary magician Moon the Mystic is slumming at one of the local theaters. Suddenly, a large flying object, which Batman believes to be a bird, flies into his bat rope and causes him to let loose. After Batman lands on his feet, he hears the screams of a woman in a nearby alley. The woman runs from Batman, scared out of her mind. She eventually realizes that Batman isn't who she thought he was and points to the lying body of her friend Cornelia. Instantly, Batman recognizes that Cornelia is dead, her throat slit, with all blood drained from her body. The woman tells Batman she witnessed a vampire murder her friend and then change into a bat. Moon the Mystic and his large assistant Ivorn walk up, with Moon admitting he believes the woman's rather wild claims. Moon relates how he became aware of some grisly murders in Boston six months ago. 
eventually uncovering the perpetrator was indeed a vampire. He chased the ghoul across nine cities, leading him to Gotham. Batman isn't buying it and tells Moon to keep his superstitions on the stage and stay out of the way of his investigation. The next night, Batman's patrol in the Batmobile is interrupted by police alerting him to a fleeing man who had just murdered a woman. Batman throws his batarang and bat rope around the perp's ankles, but when he turns him over, he sees his white, ghastly, inhuman face with pointed ears, red eyes, and elongated fangs. Momentarily dazed, the murderer is able to kick Batman away and flees once more. Batman pursues and follows the vampire into a building where he hears two voices in a heated confrontation. Then Moon the Mystic is knocked out of the building into the street. Moon points skyward to the shape of a flying creature, telling Batman he is letting the vampire escape, but Batman ignores him. Going inside, he brings out Ivorn and again warns Moon to stay out of his way. Moon retorts he has no time to argue with the masked manhunter since he has a show to perform. At that show, Batman, disguised as his underworld persona matches Malone, takes in Moon's act. He notes how Moon is able to quickly change from costume to costume and release doves from beneath his cape in his act. Later, as evening nears dawn, in the heavy fog, another woman wanders about and comes across the vampire. Mesmerized by the being, she stands prone as his large, bared fangs move closer to her throat. Then Batman punches them out. The stunned vampire monologues about turning into mist, but Batman knows anyone could be fooled by a smoke bomb, but he doesn't understand how they can mistake a dove for a bat as a bird is released from the vampire's cloak. Batman punches his foe and removes the vampire's mask, revealing the face of Moon underneath. Using elements from his act, as well as his penchant for hypnotism, Moon was able to create his undead illusion. But Moon refuses to break character, telling the Dark Knight he is no magician, but the Lord of the Undead. Ivorn appears and tells Batman not to hurt his friend, but to pity him. Six months ago, a great shock snapped his mind, resulting in a split personality. One of a vampire and the man who hunted him. Batman wonders if it was his faltering career that caused the change. But Ivorn offers another possibility. Learning one's friend and assistant was a real vampire. Ivorn changes to mist and then a bat and flies off, lamenting that the revelation of his true nature caused his sweet moon to turn to murder. He flies toward the rising sun and disintegrates in payment. The woman asks Batman if they really saw what she thinks she saw, and Batman answers, Be logical, miss. That was hypnotism. Very advanced, very skillful hypnotism. The Batman will keep telling himself that until he completely believes it. I bought this comic right off the stands. I didn't expect a vampire story inside. I'm surprised I didn't ask my mom to throw it away or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a wiener. It was probably not Irvnovic's familiar Batman art that made it palatable for me. I could I could take it because it was drawn by him. Uh, this was my first encounter with Batman and vampires, I believe. I had World's Finest number 258 where Batman becomes a man-bat-like creature thanks to a Kryptonian curse. Now, that was pretty freaky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I had encountered Man Bat in my beloved Power Records story, Robin Meets Man Bat, and his backup feature in Detective, but this was probably the first book I had with an actual vampire, and a fake one. Uh, so, these women are prostitutes, yes? Oh, yes. <laughs> they they are uh, women of the night. They are women of the night. They can never say it in a DC comic, a comic uh, code-approved comic back then. As a woman runs away, she says, wasn't one of us enough before tripping over a trash can? So, mm-hmm. yeah. So if Moon wasn't really a vampire, how did he drain all the women's blood? I wonder if he didn't, you know, cut their throat 
and then Ivorn came behind him. And lapped it up? Yeah. Mm, maybe. I don't know. Uh, they set up Moon like an interesting character. A magician, vampire hunter would be pretty cool, actually. Mm-hmm. Imagine Houdini meets Van Helsing. Yeah. So, But Batman's all like, take your superstitious crap and shove it. Again, Batman lives in the DCU. He's teamed up with the Spectre and Dead Man. Two ghosts. He's also met Etrigan, a real demon. And even if you don't count the monk in Earth-1 continuity yet, what about old Gustav the Cobra from an earlier Detective Comics, issue number 455, from five years earlier? Yeah. The one that looks like Christopher Lee that we covered when we covered Horror of Dracula in the first year of House of Franklin's time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's like my battery dying in the car, and then later I won't acknowledge that batteries in cars can go bad and die. Yeah. You know, it's like, that can't be my battery. Batteries stay good forever. You know, but comics just won't let these characters acknowledge this unless they need them to. Exactly. So again, no, that's why I liked Inspector Murray so much. He's like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's not Im- totally impossible. So if I didn't know the end of the story, I wouldn't blame Moon for shaking his fist as Batman as he swings off because Batman's kind of being an ass. Oh, yeah. He's like, eh, you know what you're talking about. Eh. Yeah. We meet Ivorn, but he's silent. He's a large, bald guy with an earring. He looks a lot like Rachel Gould's lackey. I thought the same thing. Ubu. Yeah, he looks, exactly. He looks like Ubu, yeah. In the brief flashback panels, the vampire looks pretty inconsistent. In the first one, he looks fairly humanoid, but in the second one, he seems to be almost man-bat-like with huge, tall ears, and his hair up top is almost like fur, and that's the look they'll keep in the story. Uh, in that panel where he's running for Moon, he looks like the earliest pre-winged version of Man-Bat. He's got the, like, you know, he doesn't have the wings yet. He's got the, like, the cape on, so he kind of looks like Man-Bat. We get to see one of my favorite comic Batmobiles, the one that debuted in 1978 and appeared on The Challenge of the Super Friends starting that year, and was the basis for the Superpowers toy. So that's always going to be a, have a soft spot yeah. for me. What did you think about the reveal of the vampire's face? It's a silent panel, so you just get to soak up the horror image of it. I just kept thinking of Michael Morbius. Mmm, yeah, he does look like Morbius a I lot. mean, that's who I'm, I was like, oh, you know. Yeah, he does, except he doesn't have, like, the long hair. Yeah. But, yeah, he does look quite a bit like Morbius. That's a good call. Yeah, I did not even thought about that. Yeah. And he's even got tufts of fur on the side of his ears, like Man-Bat. Mm-hmm. So he's like a cross between Man-Bat and Michael Morbius. Yeah. Mm. Uh, he also reminds me a bit of the vampire from the Scooby-Doo Dynamut Hour episode, Vampire Bats and Scaredy Cats. Where Scooby and the gang visit a friend who is being plagued by an ancestor who happens to be a vampire. He's fuzzy like him. He's pale-faced. And that episode actually scared me as a kid. And the vampire keeps saying, I want blood! How'd they get away with that on I know, Saturday morning? morning cartoon? I have no idea. I don't, there was a couple in that run that were like, how'd they do that? You know, it's like... <laughs> So when we see the bat knock the rope out of Batman's hand and then fly off after Moon is thrown out of the building, that was actually a dove, yes? Yeah. Apparently. Yeah, apparently yeah. so. Um, yeah, I was like, well, couldn't he have just got like bat and yeah. <laughs> put in his axe? <laughs> but apparently it was a dove. It's nice to see Matches Malone make an appearance. I guess it wouldn't do for billionaire Bruce Wayne to be slumming in a crappy theater no, in a no. low-rent part of town, so... Moon runs around the stage and changes from his very vampiric-like magician's costume to a hunchback-type character. So, mm-hmm. he's kind of got a Lon Chaney thing going on. Senior. Uh, so, we get another prostitute in this code-approved comic. Sure has been a lousy night's work, she says. Hmm, I wonder what her occupation is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the panel of the vampire about to bite her is always 
stuck with me. He looks somewhat simian here, like he's a vampire monkey or something. something. It's something different. It's really weird. He's really strange and animal looking. Yeah. But you gotta love Batman's glove fist reaching in off panel and just knocking his very long fangs straight out. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, bam, yeah. I think DiMatteis slipped in another subversive element into the story. Ivorn seems to romantically love Moon. Yes. Did you get that? Oh, yeah. So, I don't know if they were a couple or he just wished they would be, but he refers to him multiple times as his sweet Moon. Yeah. Uh, he's even crying when he tells Batman about what happened to him. He says he was his only friend in 500 years of hellish existence. Mm -hmm. So, what did you think about this twist that Moon is a fake vampire, but Ivorn is a real one, and the revelation that drove Moon insane? It's the whole fact that I'm like, I wanted to see that, you know, even a page of it would have been, you know, if this story was just another page longer. Oh, like know? a flashback to yeah. the moment when yeah. you saw him? Yeah, that would have been good, yeah. And then he commits suicide. Yep. So we have prostitutes, a gay romance, and suicide in this code-approved newsstand comic in the early 1980s. Somebody was on vacation. Yeah, wow. Or Paul Levitz was just, you know, letting like letting stuff slide. It's like, oh, we'll let it slide. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a great story, but Batman is going to try and deny this. Maybe that's what he does every time he teams up with the specter of the demon too. Yeah. You know, it's all, it's all parlor tricks, you know, it's hypnotism, you know, <laughs> so what do you think of this one overall? Oh, much better than the other two. Oh, much, even the Teen Titans one. Huh? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I like, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like this one too. Yeah, I, I, I do too. So I, far, this is the. Best of the th of the three so far. This is my favorite one. Oh, favorite good. comic. Good too. I've always really liked this story. This is one of J.M.D. Mateus's early comic stories, and only the second superhero story he wrote. He had a Hawkman story appear in World's Finest number two sixty two earlier this same month. Previously, he had written mostly for DC's horror mystery titles. Uh, this story feels a lot like those with that twist, O. Henry type ending. Yeah, you know. It's a great little story, lots of pathos built into that last page. You find yourself asking, wait, was Ivorn killing people too? See, I know, like we talked about, I, you know. Did Moon find him murdering someone? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's the sign of a good story when you want to know more. Mm -hmm. You want to know more. True, so. true. Uh, J.M. DiMatteis would go on to create I, Vampire, uh, that series in the House of Mystery beginning in 1981. He also created Greenberg the Vampire for Marvel's Bizarre Adventures Anthology, which later got its own Marvel graphic novel. And he would revisit Batman and vampirism in the Batman, the Brave and the Bold episode, Shadow of the Bat, which we covered here a few years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, in a correspondence with him, DeMatteis reminded me of this story, which I somehow didn't connect the dots to. So, because uh, he, I sent him some emails and he answered me back and he's always been, uh, you know, he's been great on the network. He's been interviewed several times. And of course, he writes the Justice League America book that Shaq covers on the mm -hmm. JLI Blah Ha Ha podcast, so. I will never be disappointed with Irv Novick on Batman. Even Vince Coletta's inks are nice on this one. Famously, Vince Coletta. You never knew if you're going to get good inks or he's going to race half of it and try to speed things up. Novick was one of the Batman artists for me growing up, right alongside Don Newton and Jim Aparo. One of the cornerstones for me, just solid dynamic stuff with great storytelling. I love that camera angle, looking up. Past Batman's shocked face as Ivorn disintegrates in the sun. Mm -hmm. That's a really strong, strong panel. I don't think this one has been reprinted anywhere, but it's on a DC Universe Infinite app if you've got that. Mm -hmm. So definitely check that out. And if you find, I, I don't know what these, I'm sure these detective comics are actually going for a pretty hefty price nowadays. No, I'm sure. Um, but, um, you know, I don't even have a good copy. My old dog-eared copy's missing about the 
first two or three Three spreads. Yeah. Yeah, So I couldn't even pull the comic book out for you to read, but I still got my old dog-eared copy. It's just missing a good chunk of it. So, but yeah, that was a, this has been my favorite one too so far. It's, I got a soft spot for this one. So that'll do it for this episode. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters for information on how you can support the Fine Water Podcast Network. Visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Extra special thanks to Jorge Luis Castillo, Matt Ryan, Neil Whitney, and Rocket Dan Johnson for specifically supporting the JLU cast. But since we're not doing that right now, we'll thank them here on Superman. There you go. A huge shout out, as always, to our friend Terry O'Malley, a.k.a. Ward Hill Terry, or Ward Hills Have Eyes Terry, for the House of Franklin Stein theme, Terry's band, Stop Calling Me Frank, has a new single, Hard Lovin' Man, which is slated for release in November, available digitally from Bandcamp and on vinyl from Rumbar Records. Follow the band on their Facebook page and you can check the show notes for more info in that link. Come back in just two weeks for the fourth and final part of this year's House of Franklin Stein series and the 100th episode of Supermates. Wow. One hint, get plenty of sleep before you come. Bye. Fine. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Master, I did it! I brought you here! I released you! In return, I was to be given the power! Now I demand the power of immortality! You demand! I have returned to destroy the house of Van Helsing forever, the old through the young. You and your line have been chosen.